Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Africa's future is urban. The continent will be 50% urban by 2030 and double in size by 2050. Is the international community ready to shift its resources and political attention to Africa's cities? Plus, we have a special live taping of Into Africa from the 2019 Global Development Forum. We discuss why African cities are crowded, disconnected, and costly, and what we should do to address these fundamental challenges. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Rapid urbanization is creating challenges and opportunities across Africa. How can the continent configure its cities to improve citizens' lives and maximize economic growth? Joining me to discuss are Jefferson Koji, the mayor of the capital city of Liberia, Monrovia, Emilio Chiaro, the head of the Institutional Relations, Communications, Opportunities, and Economic Development for AICS, it's the Italian aid agency, Samik Lal, the global lead on territorial development solutions and lead economist for urban development in Africa at the World Bank, and finally, Dana Omran, the managing director for the City Resilience Delivery Program in Africa, 100 Resilient Cities Rockefeller Foundation. Before we begin, I want to note that today's episode is a special recap of a panel discussion at the 2019 Global Development Forum here at CSIS. We've edited the conversation to bring you the highlights, and you'll hear me jump in and out to clarify things every so often. I want to set the stage by summarizing the mayor's remarks about what the challenges his city faces. Though originally designed for 250,000 people, Monrovia is now home to 1.5 million residents. Its major challenges include job creation, access to electricity, and waste management. The mayor noted that during Liberia's two rainy seasons, clogged drains increase the potential for outbreaks of disease. Urban congestion, which occurs as people migrate from rural areas, is driving these complex issues. Samik, let me turn to you. You published uh, a phenomenal report called African Cities Opening Doors to the World. Uh, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I think I should get some sort of, you know, there must be some sort of payback I can get because I pitch it every time I talk. But in this report, you talk about the key urbanization trends and you make some projections uh, across the continent and, and some of the policy recommendations that stakeholders can pursue. So it would be useful if you could walk us through some of your key findings and maybe contextualize what his lordship said about Monrovia versus other cities in the region. Africa is urbanizing in terms of people but it's not urbanizing in terms of capital investment. So if you were to think about the development or the urbanization experiences of East Asia, what really worked for East Asia was that as cities were being built, they were hungry for a lot of investment and capital, and a large share of national investment to the account of 40% in Korea, for example, was allocated to urban investment. The second big difference is that what, what the mayor said about crowding is that African cities in general are not being developed in a sense like cities you are familiar with. If you were to go to Barcelona or to New York or even here in Washington, D.C., when you imagine a city, you think about cities being developed as large pieces of land that are subdivided and infrastructures put up. And on top of that infrastructure, you have commercial structures and further out, you have homes. 
And this infrastructure allows for people to connect to all kinds of jobs, not only jobs in one part of town, but if demand changes, you can switch and look for a job somewhere else in town. But in much of Africa, besides some cities in South Africa, this process is not working. Cities in Africa, like in Monrovia, are being built as small parcels of land that are put together. There's no real market for developers. And in most places, governments don't have the remit or the capability to do land development. At the same time, these small parcels of land are disconnected from each other. So the only job you can find is right beside your home. So I think the combination of these two things happening, lack of capital investment and poor urban structure, is really creating a condition that I call African cities have closed their doors to the world for businesses. What I mean by that is a lot of research we did over the past five years in Africa shows that the fragmented nature of urban development in Africa is increasing cost of living. Congestion bids up. Uh, cost, uh, you spend more time on the streets traveling and waiting for, for transit. And, and the price of housing goes up because there's not enough housing to go, go around. So this makes African cities, being the poorest in the world, some of the most expensive places to live in. And what this means is that if you're a worker in the formal sector, you would demand wages to compensate for these high prices. But those firms who want to come internationally don't really think the productivity is worth investing, so Africa's cities are locked into these real non-tradable economic activities. So cities of five million don't have the world as their market, they're just local markets. So this being costly is largely or partly driven by the urban structure of a city. And Emilio gave his views on how a foreign government thinks about assistance in the cities. We have to shift our uh, resources toward the cities, toward the support of government, of city, uh, municipal government, and so on. It's not enough what we are doing. We are accustomed to to allocate our resources based on traditional government-to-government uh, aid, I think it's time to change this, this, this thing. At least we have to focus on our attention, political attention, and consequently, uh, consequently our budget on this thing, on this uh, major challenge. And then pay attention to secondary cities. Um, they are growing. They are growing faster, they are growing as all the other cities. Remember that I think 90% in African Asia live in secondary cities. What is a secondary cities? Uh, according to, to UN Habitat, is a cities between, I think, 500,000 and 1 million, 1 million something uh, inhabitants. But it's not, like, it's not just a, a, a size or population problem, because their importance on, in the economic context, maybe um, not not only based by uh, on the on the um, number of people, secondary cities could be a model. Some somehow, I come from Italy. I come from Europe. In Europe, the idea of having middle cities and not just megalopolis has been the engine of our development. Has been very important. We have to promote the peer-to-peer city-to-city uh, uh, partnership. 
we know we, there are so many citizen network in on different uh, different issues and different uh, topics and they work and it's good we have in italy a long tradition of what we call territorial partnership territorial cooperation and we have to foster this exchange of experiences of officials and so on and so forth between cities um, from and partners from uh, the north to the African cities. Thanks, Emilio. One of the benefits of hosting this panel is that I get to invite people and institutions that I really uh, think the world of, and one of them is the 100 Resilient Cities. And, and Donna, your 100 Resilient Cities is doing a lot of the things that Samik and Emilio are talking about, both in terms of trying to address the institutional constraints, thinking about peer-to-peer -peer relationships, focusing in some cases on secondary cities. Can you walk us through what is unique about 100 Resilient Cities and what do you see as the role of an NGO and a foundation in partnering with city municipal leadership? So we work with the cities in our network to develop urban resilience strategies uh, that take a really deep look in into what are these chronic uh, stresses um, that cities face and what are these acute challenges. Um, and then we help uh, city governments uh, do this work by funding this position of a chief resilience officer in cities. So the chief resilience officer it plays a really important role and this gets to I think uh, one of the key points I'd like to make is that the chief resilience officer sort of sits in partnership with the mayor or the city leader and their, one of their key roles is not just to lead this development of a resilient city, a resilience pr a strategy, but to actually break down silos. And one of the biggest challenges we see in sort of working with city governments, especially in this part of the world, is this very siloed approach uh, to solving challenges. So you have cities uh, where the water department doesn't talk to the transport department, where this, you know, uh, so solid waste management is held and is, is managed in a very si siloed up way without thinking about, um, you know, its impact on informal communities and employment. And, and this becomes a problem when, um, for example, if, if, if those of you who may have be familiar with uh, Addis Ababa, in 2017, there was a huge uh, landslide at the landfill, the Koshe landfill, which killed over 100 people. Now, it's not just about, you know, the fact that this landfill was is always overflowing and no longer able to manage sort of the, the waste that's generated by a growing massive city like Addis Ababa. The other issue that was highlighted when this landslide happened was that it exacerbated these underlying stresses. You had tons of informal communities living around there. You had the livelihoods of informal waste pickers that were impacted by the landslide. So you start to get at the importance of why we needed to bust these city silos and why we needed this more systems approach to solving challenges in African cities and cities around the world. But I think so breaking down silos within city government is one, one thing that we're trying to do through um, our work in, in, in cities. But the other piece that we're really conscious of, and I think this is speaking to your point, Emilio, is that there's a real need to break down silos or start to work across jurisdictions and across not, you know, jurisdictions because challenges really don't have city limits. And you know, one of the cities we work in, uh, and speaking again of secondary cities, we work in Painesville in, in uh, Liberia. Um, and you know, we're working with the city of Painesville on solid waste management, but it the solid waste management problems don't stop at the boundaries of the city. They, we, they have to be connected and we have to be talking to the national government and with other cities nearby. And then 
you know, the third type of silo or the third type of sort of barrier we're trying to overcome is silos, frankly, in the funder and donor community. Um, you know, many, the way traditional development has been structured is you have, you know, GI said that's working on water, the World Bank that's working on jobs, um, you know, the Swiss that are working on one program, et cetera. And we need to do a better job as philanthropists, as donors, as funders, as development banks to talk to one another. One of the observations about African city leadership is that you increasingly have more and more responsibility, uh, but you haven't seen a commiserate increase in your authority and your resources. So maybe, the Mayor, your thoughts on that challenge, and then maybe, Donna, some of the, the ways in which your foundation thinks about this issue. Your question is very necessary. We have a huge responsibility, but with grossly inability with no, cap with, with no resources to address some of those things. And that's why when I pointed out that even those of our partner, development partner, donors, need to be more proactive and need to be more you know, uh, engaging in, in being more practical in achieving some of those issues. What do I mean about them being very practical when I make the analogy between data and the challenge? Because sometimes we get we get overwhelmed with the bureaucracy and uh, instead of uh, attacking the real issue. And I'll be very clear, you have the issue about West Point, Sony Wind, uh, PHP. Those are all densely populated community. If there is a stem process in addressing those issues, and then I have to wait for the World Bank, who said to me that I need to follow X, Y, and Z, not understanding the consequences those things will take before we address those things. I think those are issues that fast more threatening the survival, trust more strengthening the advancement of the city. Another issue I want to lay again, relationship with central government sometimes become very challenging. More especially when you have political, we have political differences. Because most often there is a competing difference between the central government and then with the mayor. Most often, the mayor sometimes, people believe that the mayor gets very popular with the people because he's the, the closest person with the community so that the central leadership, once he's not comfortable with that mayor, he's become very lassadacical in addressing some of those challenges of the people. Just me say thank you very much. Thank you, and I'm really glad that you, you brought up that relationship between state and, and city. You, in Monrovia is the case that you and the president are of the same party, but in many cities in sub-Saharan Africa that isn't the case, which makes these challenges of responsibility versus authority even more difficult. Donna? Yeah, so I mean, that's, it's, it, that's a really good point. You know, one of, one of the places where we uh, are working is with the city of Cape Town. And if any of you have been reading, have been reading the news over the last year, you know, we've been, the city of Cape Town has been on the front lines dealing with uh, drought, an extreme acute shock where the city was set to run out of water. And one of the key issues there is that we were working with the city uh, to figure out how to work better with the provincial government, to work better with the national government. So there really is a need. How, do, how can cities do more with less, or how can cities you know, address these challenges better? Yes, definitely. You need different frameworks and different ways of cooperating with regional governments and national governments, for sure. The other thing is that with limited resources, cities must they can no longer address these challenges on their own. 
So the only way, in my view, to do this is through two, two, two ways. First, they have to engage with their community, local communities. They have to engage with the private sector. You need that sort of inclusive co-creation and participatory processes to help co-design solutions. And that's one of the, the one of the roles that we've been trying to play in the cities where we're active is to bring together um, players from the private sector and from the NGOs, from grassroots communities, from organizations like Slum Dwellers International to actually help city governments understand that they have a, a, a lot of capacity that lies beyond uh, government where that they can draw from and that and sort of get governments comfortable with asking for help, which is not always an easy thing. I think the other piece, and this is this is a really important piece, is sort of leveraging budgets. You know, every city mayor that I talk to will say, "I don't have money. Give me money to do this project." But what we've learned is that there's always money somewhere. And I always tell mayors, you know, show me your budget, and I will tell you what your priorities are. Donna makes a great point here about co-designing solutions with various stakeholders. During the Q and A portion of our event, an audience member brought up the idea of charter cities. Samik's response adds another valuable layer to Donna's argument. Given in Africa in particular, where land development at scale has not been the remit of, of municipal and local governments and they don't have capabilities, it's often really a good idea to think about the private sector doing the role of city building. I would completely believe that if I didn't believe in equity. And I feel, are we just going to build gated communities for rich people in Africa so that the 1% who are anyway making 95% of the wealth make more? I don't know, right? And then from a more pragmatic way, I, I need to question, I've been doing this work in South Africa, where there are a lot of these industrial zones, you can call it charter cities, that are built just outside the city limit. limit. But what are they doing is they're providing the local infrastructure but a city has to provide the mains to connect to this, to this new charter city or new development. And nowhere are they paying the cost of bulk infrastructure. And these cities themselves are going into a huge fiscal crisis. And this is South Africa, which is one of the most prosperous nations in the continent. So I'll be a little cautious thinking about equity, thinking about the fiscal consequences, and a bigger issue of sovereignty. Would you as a local government want to give up political say and authority because someone can put land together? I don't know, but those are issues we need to think about. I started off this panel saying that it's my view that we are overweighted towards the rural areas and that we need to pivot. This is Samik and Amelia's chance to tell me I'm wrong or to disagree with me. If we know that the population, that the future of Africa is urban, how do we now think about our budgets, our assistance, our engagement in a, in a systems way, as Donna said, so that we can actually hopefully uh, open doors again and uh, you know, remove some of these constraints? Let me introduce uh, this, this idea of smart land. Um, I think we have to, uh, to change our mindset with this opposition. I am provocative, obviously, uh, between city and rural development. If you have middle cities, uh, secondary cities, you have strong connection, or it's easier to have strong connection uh, between the market, which is in the city, and the productive district, which is in the rural area surrounding. Um, you, you have to build transport systems, you have to build, um, you have to build food system, which integrate the, the two dimensions, the, the, the urban, urban dimension, the rural dimension. Um, 
I think this could be um, a model. It's, it's difficult, but it's possible. In, in Europe, uh, we have this, this experience of leader. Leader is nothing political, it is just an acronym. It's a, it's a fun um, that we used to empower the land and the, the countryside with infrastructure, digital infrastructure, hard infrastructure. And I think this could be uh, um, an attempt to, to, to do something, something similar in, in Africa. Why I'm, I'm talking about smart land? Because we, we talk about smart city. Smart land is, is something, is an evolution, because you have to, to if you want to, to, to reduce the pressure on big cities and uh, urbanizations and so on, you have to spread, I mean, the, the opportunities on the territories, and you have to build poles, you have to build uh, centers mm, smaller and integrated with the interland, so that you can, and to do, to do so, you have to invest money. You have to invest money, you have to create those opportunities and, and those, um, I mean, uh, links to the modern world that young people are looking in big cities and in capitals. So, Judd, I think the way you pose the question of a trade-off between the rural sector and the urban sector is a real problem. Because I think much of development policy debate in Africa is pitching rural economies versus urban economies. And we can't say it's farms or firms in cities. It has to be both. And I know that's sort of a cop-out of an answer that you were sort of hoping me to say, since you love cities, you need more investments in cities. But much of our analytic work across Africa shows, and we have done a lot of this across the region, showing that the more you invest in the rural sector, the less you have push migration to cities. When folks come to cities, they should be looking for jobs. They should not be looking for healthcare. They should not be looking for schools for their kids. They should not be looking for clean water for their families. But much of mobility in Africa, from rural to urban areas, is because of basic services that they are starved of in rural areas. So I think we need to be more aggressive in making sure basic services are provided everywhere, and that would make urbanization much better. But that does not mean we don't do anything in the short run to invest more in cities. Just for the record, I knew Samik was going to say that, and I wanted to have that nuanced argument in the conversation. I encourage you, if you haven't already, to watch our full event video stream. For now, we're going to jump ahead to another great audience question. How effective can investing in technical urban planning be? One thing I would put forward is that there is a real need to invest in the in academic institutions on the continent, urban planning institutions on the continent. And one of the biggest problems we face and the challenges is a lack of capacity in city government, is a lack of capacity in urban planning departments across cities. Um, so if you could make an investment in sort of the university systems and training for urban planners, uh, you would make a really big difference, I think, in local governments. Um, okay, I'm gonna be really quick. Urban planning, I think that's a fundamental issue and in the report that we did on Africa cities, getting capabilities but also remit of urban planning to improve is really one of the key issues. But I worry about the sort of planning we do. We can give planners a lot of capacity to teach them to, inf 
to enforce laws that are historically coming down from the UK in 1948, right? And those are totally rubbish laws. And I think there is a need for better reforms in getting the regulations of urban planning fixed and getting planners to be more compatible with the new wave of flexible zoning and density regulations that we would want to think about. I want to give the mayor the final word. First, he'll make an important point about outside intervention in Africa's urban landscape. He'll also tackle an audience question about what three issues he'd address if he had an unlimited budget. Sometimes our development partner, the EU, the, the World Bank, and sometimes it's good to take some of those experts and take them to the community and take them to the country. But I want to say we need to shift that. The people must be master of their own issues. We must begin now to ask people in the community. You must go to West Point. You must go to Nukutan. Those people in the community you may not know, they have solution to their own issue. Rather than you just taking somebody from Washington, D.C., and taking somebody from London, and they will fly 16 hours, and they will go back. Their perception and their theoretical understanding is quite different from the practical reality. When we begin to shift the, you know, the, the paradigm of thinking of solving those issues and allowing people to take charge of their own solution, and I think it will be a way far that we can address. So if we have uh, a lot of money, we would try to focus on education, we we'll focus on job, you know, job creation, and we'll also try to emphasize on health. And I want to agree with uh, the issue about urban planning. Urban planning is very key, honestly, it's extremely key. But I want you to look at it with, with a, from, from a different perspective. Let us see it with, vera, with different kind of layers. And so as we move towards achieving those layers, that's a, and a, people sometimes see Africa issue <laughs> and, and think that it's only unique you know, you think, so those issues that are affecting Washington, D.C., those issues that are affecting Paris and London, and I want to say to you categorically, Claire, those issues are quite different. There are no similarity. You know, there are fundamental difference. In fact, there are difference in substance, there are different in form, there are also different in approaches. So when we get there, until we believe that those are the way we need to solve those issues, <laughs> if we do not accept that fundamental challenge, we will not solve the issue of Africa. This is what I love about CSIS. We had a vigorous debate, some passionate interventions, and ended up with a more informed understanding of the issues at hand. So let me thank our distinguished panels, including the mayor, for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks.